0: This morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 13 through 17. And the main point of the text is very simple. Jesus has come to rescue not those who have it all together, but instead those who are broken, those who are in need of rescuing. Before we even begin to flesh out the text, I want to share with you a story When I was in the 6th grade, uh, the town that I lived in hosted a youth basketball program for 5th and 6th grade boys. And this was really a time that you you could learn the fundamentals of the game. It was a time where you could determine whether or not uh, basketball was for you. Uh, and it was just a great way to kind of just learn about, you know, being a, a team. Well, believe it or not, and I still feel this way to this very day, I had no desire uh, to play basketball. I did not want to run up and down a court trying to throw a ball into a hoop. Uh, and I still, to this day, really don't. How many of you guys that, that way as well? Anybody? No, we got a, no? Okay, everybody likes basketball. So that's good. Uh, but, you know, everybody in the school and all of my friends were participating, so I said, well. All right, I'll do it as well. In fact, my dad, uh, who is here this morning, he also uh, coached my team. We were the L.A. Lakers. And listen, you know, and maybe some of you have this, like if you've got uh, kids that are in an athletic program, like you can just tell the kids that have it, right? And then you can also normally tell the kids that don't. Uh, Our team, I hate to say it, uh, ours was the team that didn't have it. Like, there was maybe one kid on the team that was good, but the rest of us were awful. We did not win a single regular season game. Uh, I don't know if I ever even scored a point. Uh, There was one kid on the team that was so exhausted running that he faked an injury uh, on the court in order to be shuffled off. Now, that may or may not have been me. I'll let you be the judge of that. (laughs) But here's the thing. What was difficult about that season was not necessarily what took place on Saturday morning. Saturday morning, all of the kids are with their parents, they're with the coaches, everyone's being civil, shaking hands, good game. What was difficult was Monday morning, because Monday morning, first period, was P.E., and P.E. was the time where all of us would start walking this track without any adults really around, and that's where, especially for my friends who were on the other teams, that's where the heckling began. That's where they started just, I mean, unmercifully making fun of us. Not just around all of our buddies, but even around girls. And for a sixth grade boy, you don't want to be humiliated in front of a girl. And we were the outcast. It was crazy. Like any sport that we would even play in PE, it didn't matter what it was. It could be badminton. We weren't picked. They did not want anything to do with us for that season. People were embarrassed to be around the L.A. Lakers. But, you know, that was a difficult time. But sadly for many people, they find themselves going through this all the way up into adulthood. It could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because of the color of their skin. Maybe it's because they come from the wrong neighborhood. Maybe they're not as attractive as someone else. Or maybe they're a little heavier than someone else. There's a variety of reasons why people are often referred to as outcasts. But what we see is that this didn't happen just in our society. This isn't something new. This happened in Jesus' time as well. This morning, as we come to our text, I want us to look at a specific guy who was rejected by everyone he knew. He was an outcast. Uh, He was referred to by, by most as being better off dead. Now, some would say, well, he brought this on himself, and to a certain extent, he did. But what's interesting in this passage is that Jesus, as he's embarking on this mission to pursue people, as he's developing even his own inner circle, Jesus sets his eyes out not on the most talented or the one considered or voted most successful, but instead he sets his eyes on this guy. Levi, a tax collector, one who is on the same level as a thief, a murderer, couldn't even testify in a court of law, this is the guy that Jesus pursues. In all reality, what we're going to see as we flesh this text out, that this isn't just a story about Levi. This is a story about all of us. So let's look at the text this morning. Let's look first, beginning in verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And Verse 14 says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, to bring you up to speed as to what's been going on in the narrative, just one chapter over, Mark chapter 1, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And as he begins this ministry, it is very different than what most of the religious leaders would have been doing, what, how they would have been preaching, because Jesus doesn't preach in a dull, dry, monotone form, like the teacher on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right? It's not dull. It's that Jesus preaches with authority. Jesus preaches with passion, he preaches boldly, and as he's preaching this theme of the kingdom of God being at hand, he not only says the kingdom of God's coming, he says this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom, a kingdom that is free of sickness, don't believe me, bring me your sick, and he heals them. This is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, a place that is going to be void of all demonic influence, don't believe me, bring me your people possessed by demons, and simply with the sound of his voice. The demons obey and leave these individuals. So, of course, hearing all of this, seeing all of this, of course he's going to develop a crowd, right? I mean, just a large group of people begin following him. So much so that when we get to chapter 2, what we find is Jesus is preaching in a house and the place is There's people in the doorway. There's probably people in the windows. Everybody wants to hear Jesus to the point that some people are so desperate to even experience his healing that they climb to the roof, open it up, and bring down a man who is lame. Jesus is preaching and this man comes down and he looks at this man and he, before physically healing him, does what? He spiritually heals him declaring your sins have been forgiven. And the religious leaders who are there, people who are just as intrigued about this guy as everyone else, they begin to speak to one another. Red flags are shooting up. Wait a minute. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, hearing this, begins engaging with them, and he says, what's easier for me to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to take up your mat and walk? And he heals them. The people are just blown away. And then... We come to our passage. We're not sure how many days have passed since Jesus made this bold declaration of forgiveness of sins and and is doing this miraculous act in this house. However, on this occasion, here he is again laying it down preaching the word, not in a house this time, but by the sea. And there's this large group of people, again, who are listening to him. Everybody wants to talk to Jesus. But as he finishes up, rather than just staying there and engaging in conversation with them, he begins going down this road and he has has his eyes set on one specific individual. And we find out who it is with verse 14. It's Levi, the son of Alphaeus. In the middle of Levi's shift... Jesus says, follow me. It says he rose and he followed. Now, when we look at this and we, we think tax collector, it's not that big of a deal. right? He's just a first century IRS agent. Now, for some of us a little raw because we're in the middle of tax season. Some of you are having to pay taxes in. So maybe you're like off with his head. <laughs> some are like, no, I'll give him grace. We get a refund, baby. This is a good part of the year. But there's so much more to this guy and and the profession that he's in back during this time. Many of you probably know at this period, Israel was not a sovereign nation. Israel instead found themselves under the ruthless rule of who? Rome. Of the Roman Empire. And so Herod the Great, ultimately, as he dies, he he kind of allows the power to be controlled by four of his sons, and this man by the name of Herod Antipas is controlling this area, and he says, listen, we got to impose taxes. But instead of the taxes going towards the well-being of Israel, they instead go towards the well-being of this foreign nation, of Rome. So the Jews are expected to collect these taxes. Well, no one wants to do that, so here's how they make it appealing. What we'll do is is we'll say, listen, we'll get these little booths, these little franchises, and we'll, we'll go all around, and you require, you charge the taxes that you're supposed to, but anything extra, man, feel free. Charge them as much as you want. You can make a killing being a tax collector. The problem is, the people who would do this would what? They would betray their own people. They would be horrible horrible examples to the community of Israel. It would basically be like, say, Russia or North Korea invaded our country, overthrew our government, and then they began imposing taxes on us with the people that we grew up with, but those people that are charging us taxes wouldn't say, I'm sorry, we have to do this. North Korea is making us do it. Instead, they'd charge even more so that they would be better off than you. These, the kind of people that, all of a sudden, Jesus pursues. Levi, a tax collector. This is insane. Why in the world would Jesus pursue someone like this? Here's what we have to understand, and this is the first point. Jesus never shows partiality towards those whom he calls. He never shows partiality. He doesn't engage or try to bring about with his inner circle somebody who has it all together or who's an upstanding citizen. Instead, he goes after a guy like this. And as shocking as it is to us that that he would love and even invite someone like this to be a part of his circle, it's the same story for all of us. I mean, think about it. Sure, we might be upstanding citizens in our community, we we may have it all together when it comes to our families, but before a holy God, as we sung about this morning, what is a head full of rocks, heart of stone, committed cosmic treason against a holy God, the only thing that we are are deserving of is wrath and punishment, and yet in God's love, He pursues us. He he goes out on a rescue mission, not just for Levi, but for us. I mean, this is amazing. Think about, where were you when God saved you? I mean, al- although our stories might be different, we're all on the same level playing field. None of us are righteous. We're all in need of rescuing. Where were you when God showed up? Because oftentimes he shows up when we least expect it. We have no intention of inviting him into our hearts. I, I think about my own life. Being raised in a godly home, at the age of six, making a profession of faith, walking an aisle, getting baptized, got the certificate to prove it. But for nine more years, there's no desire for the things of God. There's no hunger for His Word. Sure, going through the motions, but there's nothing there. There's no need for a Savior. But at the age of 15, sitting in a choir loft, singing songs, declaring of the love of God, though I have none in my heart. On that day, Jesus says, Ryan Mason, follow me. Where were you? Our stories might be different, but it's, it's ultimately the same. Jesus says, follow me. I think about people that I have been close with, one deacon in Arlington that said, Man, God saved me on the side of Interstate 10, getting ready to kill myself, and Jesus invaded my life and said, follow me. I think about one of my friends who became a pastor, who's pastoring right now in Pennsylvania, who was invited to church, and so he goes without shoes, and he actually stole the shirt that he was wearing on his back. And on that day, Jesus says, Raymond Johnson, follow me. Where were you? And this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has come to do, not just for men like Levi, but what he has come to do for men and women like us. There are some of you in this room who are thinking to yourselves, I'm unworthy, who maybe have heard from a spouse, or your boss, or your co-workers, or your friends at school that you're of no value, and yet what we see in a passage like this is that the gospel says otherwise. You are, for some reason, I am, for some reason, of tremendous value to the creator of the universe. But what we also see here, as encouraging as this is, I want you to look at the last sentence of verse 14. As Jesus interrupts this man in the middle of robbing people, of taking advantage of people, Jesus says, follow me in the last sentences, and he, that is Levi, rose and he followed. In other words, what we see here is that yes, absolutely, Jesus will save you right where you are. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to get your affairs in order. He will save you right where you are, but make no mistake about it. He won't leave you there. You will be moving forward. You will be changed, right? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, what? He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Levi did not say, well, just hold up a minute. Let me finish my shift. He doesn't say, well, we'll just hold up a minute. Let me go home and, and kind of weigh the pros and the cons. I'm not going to make as much money anymore. How am I going to live? Instead, what does Levi do? He gets up and he follows. There are some of you who have been called by God. There's no partiality in his calling. No matter what background you come from, what zip code you're from, he has called you. He has sought to radically transform you, and he is giving you the Holy Spirit to conform you more and more into the image of Christ. And in doing so, you are moving forward. You're no longer the same. So let me ask you this morning what is it? Because some of you are totally satisfied with the one and done understanding of I pray the prayer, I'm good to go. But have you been changed? Some of you, God is calling on you to leave your unethical practices at work. God is calling on some of you to leave a toxic relationship that is hindering your relationship with God. Some of you, it's not even that. Some of you, God's just calling on you to leave your selfish ways and to put him first and to put your family first rather than all the things that you want. And I've got to be careful saying that kind of stuff because I don't want this to turn into a moralistic sermon It's not meant to be a moralistic sermon. If you do all of these things, if you work your fingers until they're bone dry, then then you will receive salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But a person who has experienced Christ interrupting their lives and saying, come, follow me, they will be different. Works doesn't get you salvation, but it's the evidence that you've received it. Right? So we see this wonderful Wonderful act of Christ, showing no partiality in his calling, saying, Follow me. We see Levi being radically transformed, moving forward. But notice next, and this is the second and last point. Congratulations, we're almost done. (laughs) Though Christ shows no partiality towards those whom he calls, what we also see beginning in verse 15 is that Jesus shows no partiality towards those whom he fellowships with. This is different. Because Jesus, when he calls this Levi, he's not satisfied in him filling out a little card, reporting it to the convention, and then boasting about all the salvations he had received. Instead, what does he do with verse 15? Look at it. And as Jesus reclined at the table, where? In Levi's house. Many... It says, tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples at Levi's house. Why? Because there were many who followed him. You understand what's happening here. There's this large feast that's taking place. That's what Luke, Luke's account says. It's a great feast. It's a new birth celebration. Levi has been changed. He wants everyone to hear about it. And Jesus doesn't go, nah, I'm good, man. I shared the gospel with you. You prayed the prayer. You're good to go. Everything's done. Instead, he says, man, I'm going to be at your party. In other words, what Jesus is demonstrating here is that this is a person who's not just interested in salvation per se, as as praying a prayer and receiving Christ, but in discipling and pouring himself into this man. This, This guy ends up being one of the disciples, right? And all these other tax collectors and sinners are there. You say, well, what does it mean by sinners? This means thieves. This means prostitutes. It's not just Jesus and his disciples who are there. And imagine how uncomfortable, mind you, it would have been for Peter, James, Andrew, and John. These were fishermen in the air. They had been taxed by these jokers. (laughs) And yet now they're at a party with them celebrating the new life of this deceiver, this traitor to Israel, and Jesus is demonstrating and showing them, listen, it's not just about the decision. We are to do life with these kind of people. We are to pour in to these kind of people. But notice the difference with the religious elite, with the churchgoers, we could say, synagogue goers. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, right on, is that what it says? No. Why in the world does he eat with these kind of people? Why in the world? And notice, they don't call out Jesus because they've already kind of been humiliated back at the house a couple days before. Instead, they pursue who? The disciples. Well, we're their religious elite. We can flex in front of these guys. So, hey, Peter. How come the guy who claims to be the Messiah, you're you're a rabbi, how come he's eating with these kind of people? And I love verse 17 because Jesus doesn't just send them to the wolves. Instead, Jesus, with the biggest backbone in the world, goes to these men and says, Hey, uh, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. Let me ask you a question. Who goes to a doctor? What kind of people are around a doctor? Clean, healthy people or sick people? Sick people. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Not to call clean people who think they have it all together, but instead people who willingly recognize that there is none that are righteous and they are desperately in need of this salvation. This is my mission. Here's the thing. The Pharisees should have been doing the same thing. The people of Israel should have been doing the same thing. I mean, you think about it. The people of Israel were meant to to declare to the nations, come and see this great God. Come and be a part of what God is doing for the people of Abraham. Look and see how wonderful this God is. But instead, they built walls miles high, and they said, we are not going to fellowship with these kind of people. Instead, we'll stay in our studies, we'll debate, and we'll make no impact for the kingdom of God. We have it all together. These people that don't, they need to just tend to themselves. But, friends, Christianity says otherwise, doesn't it? It's easy for us to look at a passage like this and think, how could the Pharisees be so judgmental? How could they be so blind? But let's be honest with ourselves. This happens in churches every week. Did you see who came to church? I can't believe he or she would even step foot in here. We find ourselves hesitant, refusing to share and invest and, and, and demonstrate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just the people across the globe, but even our own neighbors. Well, that, that that's great for Mercy Hill. That's great for the staff, but that's not my responsibility. This text says otherwise. We, as Christ, because here's the deal. When Christ is killed so that they might have life, and he comes back from the dead, what does he tell his disciples? Go out and make disciples. Do the very thing you've seen me do for the past three years. We at Mercy Hill exist to glorify God. How? By making disciples. It's not a suggestion. It's not a program. It's who we are. This is what the church is called to do. So we minister not just to those who are like us, But we engage and demonstrate the love of Christ towards those who are nothing like us. We engage with the homosexual. We engage with the atheist. We engage with the young woman who has chosen to have an abortion. We demonstrate the love of Christ to them. Why? Because they are just as much in need of the gospel as we were. So we pursue them. And if that is uncomfortable to you, if you have a problem with that, and you may have had a problem embracing a Middle Eastern Messiah that didn't speak any English when he was here on earth. The gospel is for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every zip code, every background, every skin color. Jesus willingly fellowships with them. He willingly fellowships with us Gentiles, not Jews. Gentiles living thousands of miles away from even where Christ was crucified, and yet He still saves us and invests in us and grows us, stretches us in our faith. At the beginning of the message, I shared with you the basketball team that I was on in the sixth grade. And it's true, we lost every regular season game. At the end of the season, Everybody was allowed to participate in a playoff. And so what they do is they put the worst team, which was us, against the best team, which was the undefeated Phoenix Suns. The Suns were incredible. Some of my friends were on that team. And we start playing this game, and wouldn't you know, we begin to start winning. And not only do we start winning, we beat the Suns. Now listen, this... I'm probably sinning, but when I'm really down, I think still about the faces of my friends <laughs> as they were so upset that we just humiliated them. The team, that was worthless, right? Outcast, no good, no talent whatsoever. This team beats the Suns. We ended up moving forward. We, the very next week, we play in the championship game against the Celtics, and guess what? We beat the Celtics. The worst team in the league became the 1998 champions of Hilliard, Florida. (laughs) No one believed that would happen. But you think about Levi, a tax collector, viewed as better off dead, and as Jesus pursues this guy and disciples this guy, Levi, whose Greek name is Matthew, pens the first gospel that we have in the New Testament. And through his ministry... Through his obedience, inspired by the Holy Spirit, millions have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that you are not of value to God and that you can't be used by God. There's two challenges this morning that I have for you. The first challenge is dedicated to a particular group of people in this church. Maybe you feel as if you are unworthy. Maybe you feel as if you are worthless. Maybe you feel as if you have no value. I don't care if every single person on the planet says those words. The Bible says otherwise. And make no mistake about it. He can use you. My little girl sings a song so much so that it's almost got to the point where it's annoying. But she sings, my God is so big, so great, so mighty, there's nothing my God wouldn't do. There's nothing my God can't do. He can do anything through you. So be encouraged this morning. There's another challenge as we finish. And this goes out to a group of people who are successful. Man, that's awesome that you're successful. The Bible tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above. God can use you. That is a blessing. It's not a bad thing for anyone to be considered successful. But understand this. If you're wrestling with pride this morning... God isn't any better off because of you. Like some of you in your success are convinced that the only way he could have accomplished anything in Nassau County is by having you in the mix. Friends, what we also see is the gospel says otherwise. Salvation should be understood as one of the most humbling experiences, miracles that ever happens to a believer. Because God doesn't save those who have it all together. He doesn't save the righteous. Instead, He saves broken, unclean, unrighteous people. And He uses them for their glory. And now here we are, a church of broken people who are in need of restoration, gathering together, worshiping this God who would save. Isn't that good? That God would bring together janitors and CEOs and teachers and contractors and students and house moms, whatever it is. And the only thing that could be explained as to why we be together is we have a common bond in the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. That is amazing. So let's live this out. Not just here within these walls, but outside in the world. Can we do it? Of course we can by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely we can. So may you be blessed and may you be blessed by this word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as I prayed in the first service, I don't feel worthy. I'm not worthy to preach this message, to proclaim the good news of a holy God. Father, none of us on staff are considered worthy. But yet your word has told us that you demonstrate your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, your son, Jesus Christ, died. He died for us. So, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning. I pray that we would see our value in your eyes. That we are sons and daughters adopted into the family of a great king. The king of kings. And, Father, I pray this morning that in light of a message like this, that we would... Swallow our pride, a pride that I have, a pride that I have struggled with in the past, of thinking you're better off because of me. Father, may the only thing we boast in is Jesus Christ, the only one who could ever empower us to live a life in obedience, to live a life in honor and glory of your name. Father, I pray for this church that you would minister to and you would allow us to minister to those who are struggling. Father, some of them have made significant mistakes, mistakes maybe none of us have ever made, but yet, Father, your word says that you died for just that kind of person, that you died so that they might live. I pray that we would be the light to these people. I pray that we would emulate what Christ did on earth, Lord, that we would make disciples, that we would pursue people that are not like us, and we would do it all because you are worthy. So, Father, I pray that you'll just allow this church to go out these doors, Lord, and be the hands and feet of our Savior. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
1: Let's stand together, and this is a time of response. I know that Some people, they get a little bit confused on what what we're supposed to be doing, what this time of response is. Let me try to clarify that for you just for a moment. Uh, Some of you are from backgrounds that if people don't walk an aisle at the end of the service, you think God's, God's not working. Let me ask you a question. Nobody walks this aisle today. Do you think God's not working? No, you know he's working. The Word of God is being preached. But What we do at this time is whenever the Word of God is preached, and that's what preaching is apart from just teaching the Word, it calls us to respond in light of what we've heard. And so every message is, at least initially, to respond in initial faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be able to come and to be able to say, hey man, God's working on me, I feel convicted, I need something, I hear about Jesus dying, I want to know more about that. Maybe that's where you are. Well, that's why we come down here, we stand, and we're available, because we want to lead you through that. If you want to know more about that, we want to share that with you if you're like, man, I I know I want to be saved right now, then right where you are, call out for the mercy and the grace of God. Then there's greater faith in light of this. And what we've heard today, what we do is we we don't walk away. And and I love, it's such a balanced picture of this gospel where we sit there and go, we know we're sinners. We know that we're undeserving. We know all of these things. And, And once that, once we begin to be gripped by that, we don't leave that way. We don't leave going, man, what a horrible sinner and horrible people we are. We leave going, what a mighty God we serve, because we understand, in spite of all of that, that God rescued us out of his great love and his mercy and his grace. And so now what we do is we respond to that as believers. We either come in initial faith, or we come in continuing faith toward God to the one who ultimately saved us. And so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to sing together. I'm going to be down here if you want to come and you want to pray, and you need somebody to pray with, I would love to pray with you. If you want to know more about Christ, love to be able to lead you in that. If you just want to come and share something, we're, we're open to that. If you want to come and pray at the altar, you're certainly willing to be able to do that. If you say, I'm not going anywhere but staying right here, that's okay, too. God hears you. It's okay. Does that make sense? Let's pray and respond. Dear Lord, we love you. Lord, what a powerful message about your grace and about your mercy. Lord, we need to hear and constantly be reminded of the truth that we heard today. We love you. and your precious name, we pray. Amen. Let's respond.